Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, you are truly a great and awesome God. You are great and, and exalted. And Lord, we don't see you that way most of the time. But the problem's not with you, it's with us. And so, Lord, you act in mighty ways. And Lord, we stand in awe at the power of your creation. That Lord, in, in one storm, you can, you can overthrow what men take centuries to build. Lord, you are great and awesome. And as we think about the hurricane and, and the floods there, we just pause to, to humble ourselves before you and to acknowledge that you are a mighty God and that you can raise up and you can destroy at your will. You are, you are incredible. Your acts of judgment are breathtaking and your acts of mercy are amazing. And so, Lord, we just worship you this morning as our great God. And we know that you're a God of mercy as well. And so we cry out for your mercy for the people of New Orleans, for the people of the Gulf Coast. Lord, we thank you that the church down there is alive and well. And Lord, we're hearing reports of the church at the tip of the spear in bringing relief. Lord, we just thank you that your church is, is awakened and that people are serving. And God, we pray that through your church, not only would food and water get to the people down there and homes, but that Lord, spiritual food and true living water. And that Lord, these people would come to know the home in heaven through the witness of the gospel. Lord, we pray that as people come out of basements and out of attics, not only physically but spiritually, they'd come into the light. And that, Lord, they would see that you are the Lord. That as people down there are crying out for help, they might cry out to you, O oh God, and find you, so that you might save a people for yourself, even through this disaster. Lord, we praise you for our church. We thank you for the good things you're doing here among us. We give you all the credit. Lord, we thank you for uh, the people who are here, for the ministries that are here. Lord, you know our needs. You know our needs as, as ministries ramp up in the fall. Would you provide, raise up workers? Because the fields are white for the harvest right here. Lord, we pray that you provide for our church's uh, building needs. Lord, give, if, give us favor with the town of Hingham. Give us favor with our neighbors. Lord, cause them to see that we are not the enemy. That, that Lord, uh, we are your church. And help, us to see, uh, help them to see your love through us. Lord, I pray for those in our congregation who are hurting and needy. I pray for... Our brother, uh, remember Ken Van Meter, who had a heart attack this week. We pray, Lord, your hand on him. Lord, we thank you for the life of another member of our church, Ginny McGee, who passed away this week. Lord, thank you for her faithfulness to you over the, the decades. Lord, be with Mike and Roberta and his, uh, her wife, his, uh, her husband, as they grieve her loss. And Lord, be with us now as we open up your word. We pray that you'd speak to us powerfully. We, we do believe that you're a living God. Studying the Bible is not an academic exercise, but that it is coming into the presence of the living God to hear from him. And so, Jesus, speak to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this all in his name. Amen. You open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, page 12, uh, 10-12 in your pew Bible, Luke chapter 1. Any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church, if they wish, the door over here by the piano. Luke chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1012. Well, this has been uh, a devastating week for our nation. Uh, I've been one of those people just glued to the TV and unable to turn away from the images, you know, the, just incredible images, things that are just hard to fathom. Thinking of people, little babies and elderly people trapped on, you know, expressways for 
days without food and water, thinking of people trapped in that, you know, what sounds like a real hellhole, that superdome with all the just horrible things going on there. And it, you know, it just breaks your heart. It's gut-wrenching. And, and, then, and then we hear stories of looting and, and people shooting. And, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> relief workers can't get in to rescue people because they don't want to get shot. I mean, it's just, that's insane. It, it's just such chaos down there. And so as I try to get my, my mind and my heart around the things that have happened down in New Orleans and, and the Gulf Coast, it's just, I, I can't do it. It's too enormous. It's too big. I, I try to, to, to think about it and, and try to make sense of it. It's just, it doesn't make sense. It, it's so chaotic. And, and then on top of that, you have all the economic repercussions from this thing that we'll be experiencing, you know, the gas prices and all that. So there's this kind of economic shockwave that's sent out. And then there's this ugly, like, political thing that kind of came in on it, which is, I, I just find it sickening. You know, so much. So people take opportunities like this to, you know, make political hay, and you know, the you know the president is racist, and that's why he's not sending food. I mean, it's like, like I don't care what political party you're in. I mean, that's just crazy. It's just crazy. I mean, come on. And other people pointing fingers at the mayor, and other people pointing fingers at the governor, like as if like we have to pin this on some human being or something. So there's this whole kind of like political thing that's taking place in the media that just I feel like man, just get that away. We we have to focus on these people and, and get aid to them and not worry about all this political haymaking. So there's all this going on and you're trying to get your mind around it. And then as a Christian, there's a whole another level that we're processing too, and that is, what's God doing? What are his purposes? Can he really bring good out of this? What are God's plans in this? Why, why, and we believe he's sovereign. We believe he has a kingdom that's moving forward. We know his kingdom is about life and salvation and his glory. So how is that going to come through this? And there's times when you look at a situation this big and you say, this is impossible. God cannot bring good out of this. You know, I mean, you wouldn't say that, but there's some part of your heart that really believes that this is just hopeless. How can God's glory shine through this? How can his kingdom be advanced through this kind of a disaster. Well, today we come to Luke chapter 1. We're going to study verses 26 to 38. It's a beloved story. It's a famous story. It's a story that's so famous it has a name. It's called the Annunciation. And it's called the Annunciation because it's the time when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and announced to her that she was going to have the Messiah. So it's a story of uh, proclaiming the Messiah, which is why we're singing all these Christmas songs. Pretty cool. And... Uh, Christmas in September. But it's more than just a story about Jesus is going to be born. It's part of the larger story of God's kingdom purposes are moving forward and will not be stopped. That, that's the larger sort of narrative thread. If you were here last Sunday, we studied the Annunciation of John the Baptist, which is the chapter before, and we saw that, that the two are kind of connected. And so now God's kingdom is moving forward and nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the purposes of God and the plans of God. He can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. As we just sang in that last song, for God to be magnified. So let's just dive right into the story and, and look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. It says, In the sixth month, that is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy from last week's story, you can read that in your own time, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So the angel comes to Nazareth. And what a contrast from last week. Last week we saw angel, the uh, angel Gabriel come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the epicenter 
of uh, life in, in Jewish culture. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish uh, identity. And in Jerusalem was the temple, the center of Jewish worship. And the angel comes to the temple where everyone's worshiping. And it's this kind of this big public thing in the, the capital of Judaism, so to speak. But today's story takes place not in the center. It takes place way off in some uh, fringe area. In fact, if you want to look at your sermon notes real quick, uh, inside your bulletin, you'll find some sermon notes. Where are my sermon notes? Anyone got extra sermon notes? There we go. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses... Uh, this one looks like this. And you'll see a map on the front. There's Jerusalem down there by the Dead Sea. Up here by the Sea of Galilee, you'll see Nazareth. So the scene shifts north. We're now in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was nowhere. It's just a little agricultural village. Nazareth had no... It wasn't on a major trade route. It wasn't the center of anything. And so the story shifts to this quiet little burb, this, this little village town, Nazareth, agricultural village. And the focus shifts from the, an elderly woman who can't have children to a young woman who's engaged to be married. In verse 27, we see that the angel came to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So here we're introduced to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And already we learn some things about her. We see that she's engaged. Now, in those days, uh, in Jewish culture at that time, engagement was kind of different from the way we do engagement today. When you were engaged in those days, you were basically married. So if you were to break off an engagement, you essentially had to get a divorce. So you'd be betrothed. The betrothal period was probably a year, and then you'd be married. And typically, people got, women, young women got married in those days when they were able to have children. So your average marriage age was like 12, 13. So that's what you have to envision here. I mean, it's a different society. They didn't have this extended you know, youth culture into your 30s like we have today in our culture. It just kind of never ends and everyone never wants to leave youth culture. I mean, you, you were raised to be an adult. So it's a different kind of cultural setting. So when you think of Mary here, you know, I don't know what you picture in your mind when you picture Mary. You know, I've seen, gone to the, the Museum of Fine Arts and seen the, the ancient paintings of Mary, and you've seen the statues of Mary. And she's always kind of, I don't know, I'd put her in her 20s when I see the statues and pictures. No, no. When you think of Mary, think 6th or 7th grader. That's what you're thinking of. A young peasant woman, girl, woman, right on the cusp. And maybe 11 if she's just recently betrothed. I mean, this is a very young girl. And, and, uh, and so the angel comes to her. And he says to her in verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. God in his grace has chosen Mary for a special task. Not because there's anything special about Mary. There's not something inherently wonderful about her that God just had to pick her. But in God's gracious favor, it's, it's not that Mary has grace, it's that God has grace. In God's gracious favor, he reaches down and chooses to use a nobody peasant girl in a nobody town. That's how God is working here. That's how God's kingdom is moving forward, so that we might know that it's God doing it and not a human plan. So in what sense is Mary favored? In what sense is she blessed by God? It says in verse 31, he tells us, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of David forever. His kingdom will never end. 
And so here we have a description of who Jesus will be. He's going to be the king, the son of David. Now, you know, we read over those kind of phrases like son of the most high, on the throne of David, and we might kind of resonate with that to a degree, or maybe not. Maybe we'll just kind of read on with the story. But remember, a Jew in those days, hearing those words, those were loaded words. They would have went, whoa, you know, what did you say? And and what we might pass over would be startling and shocking to them. Because the Jewish people at that time were awaiting the Messiah. They were awaiting the descendant of David who would come and be God's king and reign on his throne. In fact, they've been waiting for this guy for centuries. Uh, The story kind of, to to sort of pick up that story, you you have to go back about a thousand years to the time of King David. And in fact, if you look in your sermon notes for a minute and look on the back, I just want to look at a few texts with you that talk about this. But a thousand years prior, King David was given a promise by God. You see there at the top, 2 Samuel 7. And this is the promise. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So the promise is, David, you're not just a flash in the pan. You're going to set up a dynasty. I'm going to set up a dynasty through you. And there's always going to be a descendant of David ruling as my king. That's the promise. I'm going to raise up an offspring for you. His name was King Solomon, right? And it says, He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. Now that's interesting because usually when we think of someone being the son of God and we say Jesus is the son of God, what we typically think of is the divine aspect of Jesus, that he's God in human flesh. But that's not what that phrase actually referred to in, in that culture. When you talk about the son of God, it, in a sense it referred to his human dimension. It talked about him as the descendant of David. He's the king who's awaited. So it goes on. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Interesting. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God promises that he is going to express his rule and power in the world through a certain lineage of David. That's how God is going to work. He's going to work through this family this family line, he's always going to have a king. The problem, of course, is that the kings ended. That the descendants of David came to an end. God punished Israel. He sent them into exile for their sins. The the lineage of David, in terms of a ruling king, ended. And then there was no king. And and so as we come to the time of Jesus, there's no king. And and so there's this kind of tension, like, what did God do? Did did God fail to fulfill his promise? Is God not going to bring salvation? Is God not going to bring his kingdom through his Messiah? Uh, In fact, uh, there's all these prophets in the Old Testament who speak then about a time in the future when God's going to fulfill that promise and establish not just another king, but kind of the king, the ultimate king. And and if you look, um, again, at your sermon notes, here's one of those prophecies. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. And notice how it talks about a descendant of David, but he's kind of like a super descendant of David. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) This is going to be some different kind of person. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who's a human, but he's also divine. It's kind of interesting, huh? Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it from that time on and forever. So, okay, all that background. Now come back to our story here. In Luke chapter 1. When the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be son of the Most High God. 
God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. I mean, this is huge. I mean, Mary would have been like, wow. What? You know, the Messiah is coming. He's finally coming. We've been waiting centuries. And finally, God's plan is taking place. That's who Jesus is. He, he's the Son of God and, and the Messiah. You know, I, I don't know how you, how you perceive of Jesus or how you conceptualize Jesus. You know, you talk to people like, who's Jesus? And people have different answers. But, you know, one of the common ones is, oh, he's a good teacher. He was a religious leader. He taught good things, you know. And then you go like, well, what? What do you think that he taught was good? Well, I don't know. I haven't really studied. But I know he's a good teacher. And, you know, so it's kind of this funny thing. that People have this sort of general impression about Jesus. But, but I, I just want you to know that bef- even before he was born, God was telling us who Jesus was. And he was more than just some religious instructor, some guru. He was the king, the Messiah, the Savior. And so I think part of this passage is we have to ask ourselves, do I know Jesus? Do I know this king? If he really is the king, is, am I his subject or not? Or am I in rebellion against the king? Do I know the king? Have I experienced his salvation in my life? And uh, have I come to worship this king and to love him like we've been singing about in all these songs and all these slides. It's kind of a challenge that God puts out there for us. That Jesus is the Savior. And, and He's the Savior for anyone who will call upon His name to have their sins forgiven. And so, you know, meet the King. Know the King. God's purposes are moving forward through this King. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't been stymied. He hasn't been stopped. He's going to bring the Messiah. He's going to bring His kingdom. And through His kingdom, His salvation is going to come to the world. But of course, there's a little glitch. One little problem here. Maybe you already guessed what it's going to be. Uh, you know, and then Mary's going, okay, interesting. Uh, but there's a little problem here, God. You know, I'm not married yet. Mary's a virgin. She's never known a man. So in verse 34, she says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Now this isn't like Zechariah's question last week, where Zechariah's like, give me a proof. I don't believe you. But it's more like, I, I just can't get my mind around this, God. How, how are you going to do this? I'm just interested to know. And so, uh, this is a question, you know, a lot of people have. This is the, the virgin birth, right? And it's one of the ancient confessions of the church that Jesus was born of a virgin. We all said the Apostles' Creed here a few moments ago. And there at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's part of, part of the Christian confession. But I think it's also one of those things that gives peop- some people a hard time believing in the Bible and believing in Christianity. You know, it's like, what? A virgin birth? I mean, come on. You know, this is why the Bible is kind of viewed as a book of fairy tales. We know that doesn't happen. I I had a guy come to me once and just said flat out, he said, you know, Pastor, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in the virgin birth or in the resurrection. He says, because that can't happen scientifically. How how does that happen? You know, know, yeah, I know God wants to move his kingdom forward and he's going to do this. But, you know, this is basic biology here we're talking how can someone who's never known a man have a child and conceive? It's just not physically possible. And so Mary asks, uh, though not with that much skepticism, but she wants to know too. Verse 34, how will this be? She asked, I am a virgin. And the angel answers in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. How is it possible? Well, I mean, the simple answer is God does it. That's the answer. God is going to do it. Uh, God is going to cause this to happen. God the Father, through the agency of God the Holy Spirit, is going to cause God the Son to be born as a human being named Jesus within 
the womb of Mary. Uh, That's the answer. God is the one who accomplishes these things. And so, yeah, it does seem, you know, hard to grasp, and it's it's hard to understand. Uh, But that's the answer. God does it. In fact, look at the language there. It says, the power of God will overshadow you. That's an interesting word, isn't it? God's power is going to overshadow Mary. So in other words, this isn't some weird sort of like Greek mythology, weird sexual thing where the gods, you know, slept with human beings and it's kind of half gods, half human beings were born. You know, it's nothing sick or weird like that. It's just a supernatural act of God. This idea of God overshadowing Mary. Uh, you know, this, this is the language from the transfiguration later on in the Gospels when the, that cloud comes down and Jesus is transformed before their eyes and it, it overshadows them. I, I think it's creation language is what we're talking about. It, it's a story from Genesis when it says in Genesis that when God created the world, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So there's the creative hovering presence of God, the, the Holy Spirit manifested there and, and He's creating a new world. Or the Holy Spirit comes down over the Israelites in the desert, that, that cloud comes down and, and the people of Israel are created. Or in the New Testament, the people are gathered at Pentecost and God's renewed Israel, the church, is created as the, as the flames of fire come down upon the people. And so I think that's what this is, is, is the glory presence of God. He's coming down. And it's, it's not a sexual thing, it's a creation thing. God is going to supernaturally create this person named Jesus. That's how it's going to take place. And why? Well, he tells us in verses 36 and 37. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. Here we go, verse 37. Underline this. For nothing is impossible with God. That's it. Nothing is impossible with God. How can there be a virgin birth? It's scientifically impossible. It doesn't make sense. You know, how can a rational person believe that? And my answer is, yeah, you're right. Virgin birth doesn't make sense. Virgin birth is scientifically impossible if there's no God. That's the key. But if there is a God, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know, if there is a God, I mean, why can't he do whatever he wants to do? I mean, that's the, the issue with miracles. If people who disbelieve in miracles you know, typically say, well, I don't believe in it because I'm scientific. No, you don't believe in it just because you don't believe in it. Because you don't believe in God. And God, you know, you can't disprove the existence of God through science. You, you can't argue the, dis, the non-existence of God. So that's a faith step you're taking. Even in not believing in God, not believing in miracles, my point is, you've made a leap of faith. As much as I've made a leap of faith in believing in God, and I would even argue you've made a bigger leap of faith. I would say it takes more faith to look at this world and say there's no God than to look at this world and say there is a God. And so, you, and so in doing that, you know, you have to decide, is there a God or isn't there a God? And if there is a God, you know, what's the big deal with miracles? It's easy. If he created the world, he can change it. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. He can, he can adjust his world at his pleasure. And he can create the virgin birth. Because nothing is impossible with God. God can do whatever he wants. God can use a, an elderly woman who's barren to bring about John the Baptist. He can use a young 12-year-old or so virgin to bring about the Messiah. Nothing stops the plans and purposes of God. And yet I get so frustrated and freaked out in my life. Like Things happen to me and it's amazing how quickly my faith goes away and how quickly I, I get freaked out by circumstances in my life. You know, storms come into my life and I just, you know, I panic and I freak out. You know, God, where are you? And God, why are you doing this to me? And why, why are you, you know, punishing me? What's happening, God? You know, we just, I just flip out like that. And it takes so long for me to build up faith and it seems like so quickly for it to go away. But, but I have to believe nothing is impossible for God. 
It says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, one of my favorite verses that I cling to. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not that everything in my life is good, but that as a Christian I have a promise from God that he's somehow working through everything in my life to bring about my ultimate good. Even really terrible things like death? Yep. Even abuse? Yep. Even poverty? Yep. God is somehow going to take the most horrific things we can imagine and to show his power and greatness and mercy, use those for our ultimate good. And, and I can't see it sometimes, but I just have to have faith that nothing is impossible with God. And so I cling to that and I hold on to that. And that's why we pray for the victims down there in New Orleans. It's not because it makes us feel better to pray or something. It's because we believe nothing is impossible with God. And even though this is a huge, horrible situation, I believe that God is doing something already through it, and I want to join in prayer with whatever God is doing. If I didn't believe that God could do anything, I could never be a pastor. I would have quit a long time ago. I mean, the sovereignty of God is the doctrine that upholds me in pastoral ministry. Because if it was just like, all right, Jeremy, here's the church, run it, figure it out, I'd just be like, ah, you know. I, just, I, I really, I mean, you know, and I'm not just, you know, being self-deprecating here. I really don't know what's going on. I know, I know you're looking for some leader who has all the answers. I, do, I just don't have that. I, I pray a lot. That's what I do. Because things come up in the church, issues, situations, emails from people. This person wants to know that, and I just go, I don't know. So I go pray. I'm like, God, help, you know. Why did you get me in this job? I don't know what to do. And... And then he answers. I mean, that's what I've just been doing for nine. That's my, my secret is, is just incompetence in prayer. So that's uh, my pastoral theology. And I just pray, God, you have to do this. And, and I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that this is his church. I believe there's nothing our church is facing that's too small for God to handle. And so I just keep praying and praying. And not, not that you become passive and don't do anything. God tells us to take steps and act actions. But, but through it all, there has to be a dependence on God. And believing that this is his gig. This is his mission. This is his church. God calls us to go out to the south shore of Boston and preach the gospel. In fact, we have it as a mission statement. The mission statement is on the bulletin. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You know, we kind of do this thing. Look on the front of the bulletin. There's our mission statement at the bottom. The companies have mission statements. We thought, oh, let's do that too. It's helpful. It's a good tool. Look at the bottom. Let's read it together. It starts with South Shore Baptist. Let's read it at the bottom. South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God by worshiping Him and by making disciples for Christ from the people of the South Shore and beyond. Sounds great, but then you know sometimes it's like, what are we thinking? It's like, have you been to the South Shore? I mean, do you know what it's like to try to share Jesus around here? I was talking to a guy in our church who's a, a Christian, and, and he was sort of lamenting about his boss. His boss is just one of these real piece of work guys, and he's Negative and he's aggressive and he's uh, you know blows up at him. Then he'll just go in his office and won't talk to him literally for a week. I mean, just a, just a really difficult boss to work with. But on top of it all, his boss just does not like evangelical Christians, which is tough for my friend who is an evangelical Christian. I guess he was driving his boss back from the airport and they're listening to the radio and someone on the radio was talking about evangelical Christians and the guy just goes, <laughs> evangelicals, you know. Actually, there's an expletive before that, but I'll just. Leave that to your imagination. Uh, so, he, you know, I just, and, you know, my, my friend's driving the car like, oh, man, like, I'm in big trouble here. You know, that's kind of what we're up against, you know, to a degree. And how are we supposed to take the message of Jesus and Jesus' love to this South Shore around us? Is this a fool's errand? Is there, is there any hope of doing this? 
And I say, yes, there is hope, but the hope is not in us having the right technique or the right whatever. It's in God's power. And so we get on our knees and we're like, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe that your goal and your plan is to preach the gospel to the whole world, and that includes this area. And so God, do it. And, And we trust in the power and promises of God because nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible. And so I have to keep coming back to who God is, not what my situation is, and put my faith in Him. God can do anything. God's purposes will not be stymied. God's purposes will not be stopped. God's kingdom will be established. His Messiah is here. Jesus is reigning. He is sovereign. He is Lord. And so we have to trust in who Christ is, not in the things that we see. We have to be like Mary in verse 38. I love her response. This is a beautiful ending to the story. It's the final beat of the the story. Look at verse 38. This little 12-year-old girl says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. What a beautiful picture of Mary here. She just says, I'm your servant. And you know, that's all God calls us to do is simply be available as his servants. We don't have to have the answers. We don't have to have it figured out. We don't have to know what we're doing even. We just have to be available like, God, you know, this is your kingdom. It's your plan. It's your purposes, your power. I'm just a servant. I'm the conduit. Jesus, you know, metaphorically speaking, let come into the world through me. Come into the world through our church. We're just here. We're just vessels and conduits for God. In some ways, serving God is so simple. It's complex, but it's incredibly simple. It's just being, saying to God, God, I'm your servant. Come and work through my life and and come and work in this world. And Mary is such a beautiful picture. She, she should be held up as an example of faith in that way. Unfortunately, Mary gets distorted. In uh, and, and two, two ways, Mary gets distorted. Uh, one kind of distortion is what we might call the Roman Catholic distortion, where I think Mary is sort of overinflated into this super kind of mythological being who, who just, you know, it's not in the Bible. You know, Mary's immaculately conceived and perpetually a virgin, and she's called the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of the Church, and, you know, people are told to pray to her. And, you know, this is... People, it's not in the Bible. I mean, I hate to say it. That's all human stuff that was created, especially during the Middle Ages and on. It wasn't even in the early church. This is just human stuff that's been created. And and so it's sad, kind of, because I think there's a beautiful Mary who's kind of been turned into something that's almost like a god. You know, people go to Mary for healing, and, you know, then they get healed, and they go, Mary healed me. It's like, no, Mary's not healing anybody. God heals people. And and so I I think there's this distortion of turning Mary into some kind of almost semi-deity. But if there's a Roman Catholic distortion, I also think there's a Protestant distortion. What's the Protestant distortion? It's the other direction. It's a devaluation of Mary. It's, a, it's an undervaluation of Mary. It's an ignoring of Mary, who is a, a major sort of figure of faith in the Bible. But it's kind of like the Protestants then are like, well, you know, we, we don't want to fall into the Catholic era, so we're not going to talk about Mary at all. You know, and, you know, Protestant has a daughter, and he's like, well, what are we going to name her? We can't name her Mary because we're not Catholic. You know, it's like, <laughs> come on! Oh, jeez, Louise! You know, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing to to kind of have that as part of the Protestant tradition. So so I think, you know, what's the answer? Well, it's a biblical view of Mary, which is not to devalue her and ignore her and all that silly stuff, and it's not to inflate her into some kind of deity, but, but to make her what she is, which is an incredible role model of faith. In many ways, positioned in this story as as the picture of how we should respond to God and God's sovereignty. We should follow the lead of the twelve year old and just say, I'm the Lord's servant. Lord, use me. I'm your conduit. 
for your kingdom in this world. You know, and, I, and that could have cost Mary dearly, realize. In that society, if she suddenly becomes pregnant before wedlock, she would have been viewed as an adulteress, and she would have been shamed and disgraced her whole life in the community. But she's willing to accept all that because she's the Lord's servant. And I think that's where God wants us to be. It's just God, use me. Whatever situation you're in, whatever difficult storm you're going through and painful thing, uh, you know, maybe that's a different approach you can take. Instead of, you know, God, why is this happening to me? Why me? I'm so miserable. Everyone listen to me. You know, instead, just say, all right, God, this is a bad situation, but I believe that your kingdom is moving forward, so Lord, use me. Work through me. I, I don't know how. I'm in pain. I don't even make sense to me, but God, still use me right now. And, and maybe, the, maybe the different approach to depression, a different approach to struggles and anxiety, is to say, God, use me in the midst of this, even as I'm hurting and broken. Let, let your kingdom come through a, a broken vessel like me. Or, or maybe, um, you know, the, you're trying to reach out to someone with the gospel. Just, you know, instead of thinking that it's your job to convert people, which it isn't, it's your job simply to be that servant. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to reach this really hardened boss, but God, work through me. I'm your servant in your time and in your way. This church, you know, it's like coming into the church and instead of saying, what can the church give me? What needs can I be met in mind by the church? Instead, come to the church and say, Lord, use me in this church. You know, how is it that God can use you as a conduit for Christ's grace to this body? And what about New Orleans? I mean, maybe we can be a conduit for God's grace down there. You know, I, I don't know exactly what we can do yet. Uh, we got in contact, uh, just, actually just yesterday, there's a coalition of churches down there that's uh, serving as a major staging area for relief efforts. And I don't know how much this is being reported in the news, but the church down there is like at the tip of the spear. They are majorly involved in bailing out that area. It's an amazing thing. And, uh, it, and you know, we got in contact with a contact person down there, a guy in our church got the number. So, you know, we're going to be in contact with him this week and say, you know, what can we do as a church? You know, in addition to whatever we might do individually, is there something we can do? And, you know, I don't know what they're going to say. Maybe they're going to say, we need some money. We'll take a collection. Or maybe they're going to say, we need some, you know, lumber, or we need someone to go down and build houses. Or, you know, I don't know. Maybe they'll say, hey, we have two families. Can they come up and live at your church with your people, and your church just kind of support them? You know, maybe, maybe we'll adopt some refugees. And go, I don't know. But I guess what I'm saying is, are our hearts ready for whatever it is that God may call us to do? So we're going to ask, and I don't know what answer we're going to get. And I don't know if we're going to feel equipped for the answer. But, but I think we have to ask and just say, Lord, we, we are your servants. Use us with all of our brokenness and all of our inabilities and all of our questions and weaknesses and, and our smallness. But just use us, God. Because in that way, God is glorified. So that the world may know that there is a God and that he acts and that he uses broken people like us. We are the Lord's servants. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray, make us more like Mary. Cause us to have that simple, childlike surrender to you, that we might be willing to be your servants. And Lord, as we look at the difficult things in the world, help us to believe that you are the king, that your kingdom plans are moving forward, granted in your way and in your time, but they're moving forward. And Lord, call us to be part of that, just to simply surrender our lives and say, Lord, work through me. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, that they would just come to know the Savior and, and know that he's more than just some guy long ago who taught things, but that he's alive today, that he's a living Lord, and help them to know the joy of serving him. Lord, I pray, break our hearts and cause us to be used by you. Lord, we, we offer ourselves to you in, in terms of the disaster down in New Orleans. We don't know what it is you might want us to do. But Lord, uh, we're open. 
And, and we're, we're available. And Lord, help us to take that openness and availability not only to the big headline disasters, but even into the small situations in our lives. Help us just to have our antenna up for people in need, that we might be used by you as a conduit for your grace and for your mercy. And so, Lord, use us. We are your servants, ready to do your will. We pray this in your name.